Hello, patrons. It's Emmett. I'm here with Canada Mike. What's up, Canada Mike? Not too much. I'm excited to talk about Lash again. Yeah, so John is buried under work right now. So Mike stepped up to do our next Lash installment, which we promised you guys. And today we're going to be talking about nostalgia. The chapter is called Nostalgia, the Abdication of Memory. And I have to say it is impressive. Yeah, my my apologies for my ersatz John impression because I'm sure he would do a better job of this. And this is this was a banger. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're already doing a good job of not sounding too excited. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, a practice skill. <laughs> uh, so yeah, in this one, what Lash wants to do is he wants to separate the critique of progress from nostalgia. And he wants to point out that progress, the idea of progress has always had nostalgia as the other side of its coin. And he does that through a variety of means that goes from looking at romantic literature to taking a look at people like James Fenimore Cooper to looking at Teddy Roosevelt's writings to Mark Twain all the way up until the present for him, which is the nineties. Yeah. I, I think, you know, this for me, you know, I've seen some things people have been saying about sort of the resurgence of interest in Lash and, and other, other critics like him as being kind of like merely uh, cultural criticism and therefore, you know, di- divorced from, true materialist analysis. And I, I think if you read this, I mean, certainly for me, it solidified the, uh, that you, you really can't do a materialist analysis that incorporates any kind of idea of uh, political ideology without some kind of theory about these concepts, right? Like the, his, mm-hmm. his synthesis here runs the gamut, right? From primarily American cultural sources, but a huge variety of them are all brought in into the political context. And it it really kind of shows the underlying psychological structure of political possibility that's created by the culture. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to me, it cast, first of all, I had a few primary thoughts. And one of them was that it made me grateful that we had embarked upon our American canon series. Because in his analysis, I mean, his fund of knowledge for the American canon is so deep and so vast, and it made me realize just how under-investigated it is and how vital it is to understanding the development of America as a country and as a culture. But I want to open up with just his opening paragraph here, because I feel like this lays it all out and it's going to be about what we get into. So he writes, this is a sub chapter for this is memory or nostalgia, right? If the idea of progress has the curious effect of weakening the inclination to make intelligent provision for the future, nostalgia, its ideological twin undermines the ability to make intelligent use of the past. Seemingly at odds, these attitudes have a good deal in common. For those nourished on the gospel of progress, idealization of the past appears to exhaust the alternatives to a tiresome and increasingly unconvincing idealization 
of the future. Hard to put it more straightforwardly than that. Yeah, I think so. And and maybe the, the critical part there is for us, for these people who are us, this exhausts our ability to deal with past, present, and future. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's no outside of that. Right. I mean, it speaks directly to our theme of why nothing feels possible. And it's because we have this sort of frozen image of unceasing progress, which is a pretty anemic concept as he's walked through it so far. And then we have this idealization of what's come before us through nostalgia. And what's important to him is that that past is also frozen, right? It's idealized it and it, he'll go on later to talk about how it's sort of this zone. It becomes this zone of innocence, right? That we mourn for rather than something we try to understand. And he also says that, you know, it's not about, there's nothing wrong with having like happy memories or things to recall that you admire from the past. That's not, he's like, that is important to living any kind of life. The problem here is that this is a flight from reality and it leaves you unable to understand your own context. And so you have two choices leaning into a fantasy of the future or crying about a fantasy of the past. Right. And I, I think, you know, one of the most interesting things to me about this is the way that he connects the view of history to the view of childhood development mm-hmm. um, in the cultures he's talking about, which was, you know, mainly Victorian England followed by kind of colonial through to modern America. Yeah. The um, Anglosphere, really. The Anglosphere. Yeah. And he does, he does a really nice job of showing kind of the homology of the view of history as or the past rather as this kind of pastoral idyllic never to be regained you know innocence and the view of childhood as this increasingly kind of bounded off pre-disillusionment stage which mm-hmm. you know in both cases this sort of pastoral vision of the past and this view of childhood innocence they presuppose basically the wrongness of those views, right? Like it's innocent because it does not know the actual state of affairs, which we are now, you know, as moderns, as, you know, adults participating in this degenerate society that we're aware of, right? And the so the nostalgia is something that feeling directed at a state which has been forever lost because it could it could never serve as the basis of anything in 